0: Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work.
1: Get out! Come on!
0: We don't know where the moon came from.
1: Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible.
0: We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for bio and health at A16Z. Today's episode is with Sean Duffy, co-founder and CEO of Omada Health. He is joined by A16Z bio and health general partner, Julie Yu and investment partner, Jay Rugani. Together, they talk about Sean's three rules of partnerships how Omada plans for large scale implementations, and how Sean thinks about structuring the economic model of these partnerships. This episode was recorded as part of our research into our forthcoming go-to-market playbook focused on channel partnerships. Stay tuned for that, which we'll be releasing in the coming days at a16z.com slash digital hyphen health hyphen builders. We'll also put that URL in the show notes. Let's get started.
1: Well, thank you so much for being with us here, Sean. Why why don't we start with Omada? Like, What was the founding story of the business?
0: Sure. Well, thank you, friends, for having me on. So uh, Omada is a a virtual care company. We um, uh, support people with prediabetes, diabetes, diabetes, hypertension, musculoskeletal care. The the quick version of the founding story is I was uh, in medical school. Prior to that, I had worked in tech at Google um, and ended up uh, well in an MD-MBA program taking an internship at IDEO in... um, At that moment in time, which was 2011, the world of tech and healthcare were very, very separate. This was pre biofund This was right when the Fitbits of the world were just becoming a thing. And I'd be with my uh, uh, friends uh, from Google and they'd be so excited by the, you know, the power of this new generation of devices to change healthcare, these step trackers. I'd be with my friends from medical school. They'd be so critical. So the core idea behind Omato was to think through, well, how might one build a more evidence-based digital health company that can really take the long view and earn the right to be a proper part of the healthcare ecosystem uh, and recognize the complexity, not try to imagine that it doesn't exist, but view it as a a constraint uh, and still innovate inside it. So that's kind of, that has been the um, path from day one.
1: The theme for this particular content series is really around distribution. Our thesis being that, you know, when it comes to building a digital health company, there's lots of things that are hard about it, but to go to market and, and really getting this in the hands of patients is, is a big friction point for a lot of companies that build in the space. And, you know, I think Omada has done a lot of really interesting and creative things along the way to get, you know, your product into the hands of the people who need them. What was your sort of framework for thinking about distribution? And were partnerships always a part of the way that you thought about distributing Omada? Or was that something that came organically along the way?
0: When talking to other healthcare entrepreneurs about channels, the first thing I say is be extraordinarily skeptical that they're gonna work. Uh, basically, you should assume failure. That's the mindset that you should go in because if you assume failure, it actually increases the probability that they do work. Very early on at Omada, I got stars in my eyes uh, with so many channels that, you, you know, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm about to strike like the biggest channel deal, you know, digital history. They're gonna They're gonna sell my product for me. Uh, that almost never works. So that, that's the first rule, be hugely skeptical. In truth, and we'll get into this, it requires an enormous amount of resourcing, planning, timing to make channels productive. They can be productive. And so that's, that's rule number one, be skeptical of them. Rule number two sounds uh, uh, competitive with rule number one, but it's not. And rule number two is you're gonna need them. You will have to, in digital health, go to market, have a combination of direct sales and channels. And the art is figuring out the balance and having an organization that can execute both.
3: Given how hard they are and given how many of them fail, why did you choose to do them in the first place? Or maybe even just expand why you need them. There are so many stakeholders in the healthcare
0: go-to-market. I'll kind of focus in on the employer and plan dynamic, but you honestly could you know, find other examples that mirror this. There will helplessly be a large subset of your employer customers, if you're if you're go to market and both self funded, that just don't want a contract with you. Uh, you know they'd rather not have to bring you through procurement. They'd love if you could work with one of their partners. Uh, so that's that's just a reality. So you'll actually talk to buyers and be like, hey, this sounds great. By any chance, do you work with Blue Cross Blue Shield of X? Do you work with PBM y? You know, do you work with Partner Z? Um, and so you'll almost be forced into exploring channels, and then you'll talk to that other partner. And they'll think, well, interesting. One of my big customers, you know, wants Omada. Um, this could be neat. Maybe instead of implementing it, maybe I could bring it to market. And sometimes they even get over enthusiastic about how quickly that can happen and what it's going to entail. So weirdly, you you will be just if you are observant about the go to market. You you'll be um, put in a situation where they'll start to, the channel opportunities start to appear in front of you by default.
1: You know, when you think about what you said earlier about being extremely stringent about assuming what's going to work versus not, but then hearing from your customers that there might be opportunities to work with third parties who they trust and are comfortable buying from, was that the predominant way by which you built your partner pipeline, so to speak? Or do you take more of an approach like traditional sales where you were kind of segmenting the market and, you know, thinking about, okay, these kinds of payers are likely good channel partners and therefore I'm going to go call the universe of all them, and do a top-down motion to try to reach out to as many mm-hmm. as they can. What was it your general approach to building pipeline for for
0: partnerships? You know, in, in thinking about what channels could work, we we did both. We did a proactive approach and a reactive approach. You know, funnily enough, this is one of one of those instances where counterintuitively the reactive works better. The proactive is you're like, oh my gosh, let's you know think about ways we could commercialize this. You know, let's bring it forward to your customers. If they've not heard of you from a single customer. You know, that's not a strong signal. So it's funny, if it, unless they're hearing about you from their customers, it makes the execution of the channel and the sales motion on the channel side more difficult. So the most successful channel relationships were just the accounts got interested. Their preference was to not work directly in a contractual relationship with Amada, but operate through the channel. Kind of that feeds channel momentum. And then you're starting to talk and you already have evidence right in front of you of a customer that's carrying forward interest. Um, and that becomes uh, far more fruitful to
3: the uh, the conversations. How did you decide who to partner with as you evaluated your pipeline? What prompted you to ultimately pull the trigger? The best signal is the
0: end buyer and who they want to work with. So if a lot of your end buyers all you know all of a sudden want to out a contract through X company and partner with X company, that's an incredible signal. Really, it's um the first principles of really listening to your customers about their preferences on how they want to work with you still holds true. And that will guide you to, to, you know, to channels. And you can kind of think about, you know, density and opportunity. And th- that is the, that's the right approach in my
3: view. One of the things that, that I find amazing about Omada on the question of picking who to partner with is that in many ways you partnered across the industry. And so I'm curious, were there major differences in the way you approach partnerships with a health system, with a payer versus other channels? The rules are pretty similar across the board. I, you know, I, I will say that in healthcare
0: especially, it, it's it's very important to approach the markets with, you know, a mindset of listening, recognizing that you're not going to know the specific dynamics of their, their business because, you know, in, in one region, uh, a specific regional plan could be under so many different pressures thanks to the local market dynamics than another. And that actually might influence who you who and how you go to market, uh, you know, with. So, um, uh, we do, pre your point, I mean, we do have a, a very multi-stakeholder business. And I honestly think that real, true healthcare innovation, you know, requires, you know, perspective on how you might fit in across the whole ecosystem and all the partners.
1: Yeah, Sean, so you mentioned earlier the, the starry-eyed, you know, entrepreneurs who think that these partnerships are going to change their life. And I was that starry-eyed entrepreneur myself back in the day. Been there, had those stars in my eyes. But the other place where you get stars in your eyes is that once you have the partnership, you know, you think, okay, now everything's going to flow. All of a sudden, their sales reps are going to be out in the field, like, you know, shilling my book and um, and everything's going to go great. But I think a lot of founders and, and companies like really underclub what you have to invest in internally from an infrastructure perspective to yeah. get these partnerships to really hum. If, if you're able to share an example, maybe of a partnership where you kind of ended up investing a lot in like internal organizational and, and processes and things like that, what are some of the things that you ended up uh, maybe being surprised that you had to invest in or change internally to make these partnerships successful.
0: The the adage of nothing sells itself is completely true. Um, And then uh, where you can be fooled as an entrepreneur is thinking that you're important to the account manager uh, on your channel partner. You are not. Their number one priority is retaining their customer and growing that customer. You know, even if you can somehow find your way to be parting their incentive comp plan, which is a huge, heavy undertaking, the majority of your channels you're not going to be able to find that path. Yours is actually a nice to have, not a need to have. It doesn't matter how critical your service is. So, so you have to have that empathy and recognition that at the end of the day, they're they're putting their neck on the line, you know, for you by bringing you in, by allowing you as part of the conversation, uh, and their incentive structure is aligned to have their party number one as it should be. If you're in their shoes, you do the same. Uh, you know, keep their customer and keep their customer happy. So so that speaks to organizational capability, number one. And this is, this is really true in healthcare. Don't mess up your implementations. You can have blips, stuff happens, bumps in the road happens. And if you have a spirit of partnership, you know, you'll work alongside your customers to get through it. But you have to deploy well, because if in the instance that the channel partner brings you in and sells you successful in partnership with you, in the instance that the deployment isn't successful and it creates customer headache, they are not gonna to wanna to bring you back in uh, to the next. It clogs up uh, the go-to-market in an enormous way. So, so what that means is you have to have an amazing customer success organization and implementation team. Uh, and just uh, really work the problem and make sure that your deployments go off you know, very, very well. I mean, early on, I remember we were um, going in an early expansion model. It was Costco who worked with us for two states and the head of benefits really liked what she saw. She's like, Sean, all right, I'm gonna roll you out nationally. And she's like, Sean, we break vendors. I can't tell you how many vendors we have broken. I don't want you to break. And we, I mean, my gosh, we thought of the thousand things that could go wrong. Like we had the entire Amada team of like 20 at the time, (laughs) like working working that problem. And we did not break, we deployed successfully, we scaled nationally across Costco. So you have to have that approach to make sure your customer is successful. Uh, because otherwise it kills your channels upstream. Secondly, you have to have an entire channel management team. So, you know, there, it's a different motion to close the channel. It's a different motion to operationalize the channel. So that's that's separate, you know, than your direct sales effort um, because it's going to involve uh, internal capabilities uh, relative to partnership marketing and channel marketing. I mean, you've got to learn, well, what are your big marketing events? Can we be there? Um, you've got to create channel specific marketing assets. You've got to create pitch decks where they're the three slides that they can plug in that uniquely describes, you know, your relationship with them. You have to do pipeline reviews, you have know, to set kind of channel goals, and you know, and all that requires uh, active, active internal management. So you need a full channel team um, uh, to do it properly.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how you structured these partnerships? Like, even maybe specific examples, even of like incentives that you had to set up to make sure everyone was growing in the same direction. Were there things that you had to think about? you know not beyond just kind of the typical rev share component and maybe even share like it was rev share the general way that these worked or was there different things that you did with kind of the the financial structures and then were there any situations where you found yourself needing to design incentives for specific teams or even individuals again to make sure that that everyone was was rowing really in the same
0: direction the general uh, economic model is a rev share every every specific channel is different but I would kind of tend to Think of kind of the five to ten percent mark as, as kind of norms for channels. um, You know, in general. That being said, in healthcare, sometimes you'll find that you won't even have rev share in your channels, uh, and you know they're bringing you forward as a need new benefit and to kind of invest in digital. Um, you know, frankly, that alone doesn't change meaningfully the channel adoption. You know, because that rev share piece doesn't go into the you know paycheck of the person selling you that's another kind of, you know, mental cognition trap. Uh, you know, don't assume that the channels with RefShare are gonna be more successful. It's not, that's actually not the case. Um, and the action happens kind of at the level of the, uh, you know, the account managers that are collaborating together. Um, we have done both non-RefShare, RefShare channels. Again, there's no difference. Um, where where you can get success is kind of either sponsoring marketing programs or getting kind of marketing programs designed, you know, things like, you know, spiffs kind of, et cetera. You have to be very, you know, make sure that, you know, PSA, Always talk to your regulatory teams. There's all sorts of tripwires. Like there's, you know, ways to do these things in kind of a totally fine way. There's ways where you can trip on regs, but um, really you need to land any IC at the level of the, the rep. Uh, and then kind of there's a whole other question of, of kind of relationships and collaboration out in the field that honestly is equal, equally important.
3: As you've observed partnerships that have been successful both with RevShare and without RevShare, when you think about partnerships today, do you have a bias towards one, even though you've seen both work, or are there other sort of mechanics and incentives that you you like to bake in today that you know perhaps were, were non obvious to you a few years ago? I mean, I I tend to
0: think having a little joint you know skin in the game is appropriate. It's you know there are, even if even if it allows you a little bit of like you know organizational clearing, you know where if the channels not working together, even if the reps don't you know receive the benefit? You know, executive to executive if no conversation. Like, look, we, you know, we're we're um, we're losing opportunity here for your organization. Uh, you know, not just kind of from a culture of innovation standpoint, but you know, financially. So maybe maybe we can think about how we work better together. So, I, I tend to think that even the air clearing culturally can be worth the you know worth the share component. So, but but you know, open minded, I tend to tend to you know want to listen to you know their preference. We've had channels where actually their preference strategically is just not to you know, not to have a a rapture component. And so, you know, it's really listening to what what they prefer because you can execute fine with either.
1: Sean, have there been any partnerships that you had to walk back or unwind or like fundamentally change, you know, once you learned what was not working and like what happened in in some of those situations?
0: You know, there have. Usually the ones that we've had to pivot on, uh, you know, are the ones where there's, thanks to the way it was set up, an incredible anxiety on, controlling the entire customer conversation, you know, you'll occasionally be presented with partners that are like, look, I'll work with you. I want to sell you, but you're not allowed to mention us in the market at all. You cannot have your reps meet our reps. We will bring you in when we tell you we'll bring you in, you know, it'll be for that hour. We're not going to you help you prepare. It's, it's, um, that mindset doesn't, it never works. It never works. And it does exist. I think it's pretty common. You will, see it, you know, the old kind of feel, felt, found adage, can work with these conversations with, look, look, I, I hear you, I actually understand the ask. These are your customers. Uh, you know, you want to make sure that we're operating effectively. Understand the, the desire for the control here. You know, what I found, uh, you know, over the course of the Omada experience is the channels that are most successful really allow the teams to collaborate. Let's literally, let's let's have them break bread, let them get to know each other, you know, become friends with each other, that tends to be what drives the best success for both your customers and the overall channel.
3: One thing I'm curious on is a lot of times in healthcare, these large incumbents are going through a build by partner discussion and debate internally. And sometimes they might come to the conclusion that they want to build what you're building. And there's a frenemy dynamic that emerges. And so I'm curious how you think about or how you advise founders navigating that dynamic.
0: So my general adage on that is just just grows in with it. It can feel a little bit uncomfortable. You're like, well, interesting. I'm actually hearing chatter from my partners that love working with me that their own organization is thinking about, well, can I build something that's, you know, Omada or a product person that maybe doesn't even know about what you do is proposing to their product council what you do. Just grow comfort with that. And then the best, you know, medicine is just success in their book of business and, you know, getting as much scale with their accounts, making sure their accounts are happy. That's kind of the, you know, the pill number one and pill number medicine number two uh, is just innovation. Get ahead of the curve of where the trends are going. Make sure kind of what you're doing with the product, uh, you know, really leaps forward at a quickened pace, um, uh, you know, because uh, if all of a sudden, as they're having this discussion, three months from there, they're like, oh my gosh, is doing this really cool, innovative new thing that, uh, you know, it kind of, in many ways, can pop that bubble of should we do this on our own? To be like, I oh, no, yeah, that's that's why we work with a model, you know, kind of re, can re-remind your channel. So just just um, me- meditate and grow Zen with it as uncomfortable as that can often be.
3: And and on that point, one thing that we've observed, and I suspect you've observed as well, is in the context of selling to a large employer or payer that operates off, you know, operates in multiple regions, they might try you in one state. And then they might have their own homegrown solution that they're experimenting in another state. Is that your advice in that situation to maintain Zen? Or how do you manage the the literal internal competition that's happening across regions?
0: The same is true. Maintain, maintain Zen and just, I hate to say, just allow it to happen without thinking too much about it. But th- that's kind of what you want to do. And just focus on making sure that, you know, at the end of the day, their customers, uh, which are your customers too, are hugely successful. Uh, you know, make sure that that, that drives you because that's the biggest leverage point. Super interesting.
1: Sometimes nothing better than a little uh, healthy competition anyway to motivate your team.
0: That's right. Yep.
1: What happens when, you know, your, your channel partnership is so successful that they ask whether they can actually invest in the company? Because that obviously creates all sorts of other, you know, just overhead and a- administrative challenges for you as a business. But what's been your framework for approaching, you know, those situations when they
0: do have that ask? I've tended to lean into that. I know can, people can get, you know, very scared with the whole strategic investment question. Um, if the company's far enough along, I think it's a, a you know, a net a positive thing. Um my rule of thumb with strategic investment generally is you gotta already have the customer relationship. So the situation you described, I think is perfect. It's literally they've seen you successful, you know, within their organization, and that's what leads them to want to invest. I you know, I think that's the the best uh, and that's kind of the rule. I've had folks that wanted to strategically invest that we had no customer relationship with, and I'm like, look, let, let's let's find a path to be successful together, and then we can have that conversation. So that's kind of one. And then, secondly, the way I've handled is like, you know, absolutely always open minded to having our customers invest. It's an honor that you'd even come ask. There's not an opportunity now, but uh, you know, as we pursue our next financing round, you know, on the um, you know on the back of a financial lead, um, would love to explore that. So let's keep the dialogue going. You know, what I wouldn't try to pivot into is doing kind of a, you know, an impromptu round or, you know, creating a capital raising event just for that partner. You know, I'd kind of make sure they understand that this can absolutely happen. It just needs to happen with the ebb and and flow of your normal capital allocation planning and strategy.
1: One of the other challenges that we often see with channel partners is that, you know, your end market segmentation might be different than their end market segmentation mm-hmm. or that you just might have a different, you know, evaluation set across each segment that you might overlap in. Are there examples where that became a challenge for you when selling through various versions of, of channel partners at Amada?
0: Yeah, so actually this is a, this um, brings up kind of a really good point in that within, you know, channels, there's a unique dynamic relative to health plan channels where large employers tend to actually have multiple health plans. And they have that to offer choice to their employees You know, they have that based on, you know, acquisitions where they didn't want to change the, you know, uh, targets, benefit structures for various strategic reasons. So, uh, you know, sometimes when you're talking to these huge employers, you know, they may have like six or seven health plans and you might work with four of them, but they really do want to deploy the solution, you know, writ large across their employee base. So just be aware that that can create a headwind. Now it can turn into relationships with the the plant partners they don't have, but that can create kind of a a headwind in, in selling large jumbos and kind of going, you know, upmarket.
1: So you've clearly learned a lot, done a lot, undone a lot as well in, in terms of channel partnerships for a model along the way. You know, if you were to rewind back to your, whatever it is, you know, 2014 self, Sean Duffy circa, you know, six, year, six seven years ago, what, what do you wish you knew about partnerships that you know
0: now? It took us a while to really learn how to operationalize uh, a channel. So I think the, um, if I were speaking to yesterday's Sean, I think again. I'd say lean into these channels. Assume they'll yield for you over many, many, many years. Like there's not a there's no such thing as an overnight success with channels. So it's a bit of um, planfulness and patience. And if you're about to sign a channel that year, assume maybe it delivers you some revenue the next year. But but uh, you know, don't uh, bet the farm on it. All
1: right. Well, thank you as always, Sean, for your amazing insights and congrats on on what you've been able to build at Omada in terms of, you know, overall go-to-market, but specifically on the on the channel partnership side.
0: Sure thing, Really Happy to.
1: Thank you for
2: joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the bio and health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z Podcast Network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.